Okay. Uh, so I'll go through the, a couple cases and we'll do a break. Um, so great questions, by the way. Um, let me know. I'm kind of a low talker, so if you can't hear me, just give me one of those. Um, so I'm going to talk about initial treatment. I am going to kind of go off. There's um, two sets of available guidelines, IDSA, ASLD, and then the um, European guidelines, and then some states have their own guidelines. I think the VA may have a set. I'm going to refer to these IDSA, ASLD guidelines a bit as we talk. So um, I wanted to start out by saying, which of the following patients does the CDC, CDC currently recommend should be offered hep C testing? I just want to kind of reemphasize this point of testing. So we're talking about the CDC here. Do they recommend for a 45-year-old woman on hemodialysis, a 54-year-old Midwestern man, normal liver enzymes, a 33-year-old pregnant woman from Egypt, a 41-year-old man with HIV acquired through sex, all the above, all but two and three, or all but three? What does the CDC recommend? Time to fire your phones back up and vote. I get no music? <laughs> okay, that's good. Sounds ominous. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, okay. So I successfully tricked some of you because Arthur talked about the guy. We now recommend testing pregnant women. Um, but actually, uh, this, that's the IDSA ASLD guidelines. The CDC yet, doesn't yet recommend that, but I am hoping they'll change. So it was the same in your pre-test question, if you weren't sure. The CDC recommends HIV and Hep B testing, not yet Hep C testing, but I'm hoping they will change soon, given what we know about the opioid epidemic and the rates of positive in that group that we've already talked about. So the wrong answer was the 30-year-old pregnant woman from Egypt. They also, I mean, Egypt might, might have also caught your attention as a place that is quite endemic for hep C, but the CDC doesn't recommend any, um, doesn't recommend testing based on being from an endemic area either. So, um, I, but I think, you know, as we discussed, if universal testing becomes adopted, everybody gets a one-time hep C test like they get HIV tests, we'll catch some of these groups that aren't being caught. So this just um, is a summary, which I won't go through all of it, but I think you all know the baby boomer, um, the recommendation for universal testing of that age group, and hopefully that will expand soon. So pregnant women are still in the sort of not recommended category. We hope that changes. Um, and this was the recommendation Arthur talked about, adding hep C screening in pregnancy to the guidelines. And, um, but treatment, as mentioned, is not yet recommended. Um, I think we'll find out more, hopefully, in upcoming years about whether it's safe, and I think that would be an ideal time to treat if, if it is safe, because we could potentially prevent transmission. That being said, as um, Arthur also mentioned, some people are testing, and what um, these are kind of some of the results of testing and linkage to care and, and also with the infants. And you can see, um, unfortunately, there are some of the same issues in the care cascade in this group. And I wanted to point out one where I think we can really make a very easy impact. And I think if we're going to test pregnant women, it should be done, is that if you send a hep C antibody, um, you should have it reflex to RNA automatically. Does your lab do that? You have to order the right one. So it's a little tricky. I mean, maybe I think working with labs, working with the people who are on sort of the lab committees to, so that people can only order the right one um, helps. Because when you do that, you, you immediately fix that part of the cascade. And it's so nice for OBs who have, you know, who do have some hesitancy about doing this test and what does it mean. 
to not have to explain, well, you're antibody positive, but we don't really know if you're, you know, have hep C or not. And it's a lot for them to kind of wrap their head around. So I think if they get that RNA result immediately and can just be educated on that part, it makes the testing much simpler. So do those reflex RNAs. Try to help your organization get them if they don't. Is the antibody affected by pregnancy at all? Is there a change in the false positive? Arthur's sort of yeah, the so expert on By pregnancy. the time you have chronic hep C, the antibody levels are high enough. They, they change them. Sorry. No, I would not. Um, no, it's a good question. The false, false negative shouldn't really occur in pregnancy, um, I mean, I guess if you've had acute hep C, you know, it may be antibody they negative. They occur, but, but no differently in pregnancy yeah. than in others. So, right. So, if you had someone whose liver enzymes were high and you thought they might have just been affected with hep C, the antibody test alone might not be enough. You may want to send an RNA, but that's just because you're worried about acute hep C, not pregnancy specific related. Okay, so we have these new drugs, and um, I was going to briefly tell you about sort of the easy ways to remember them that I use. So anything that ends in Previer is a protease inhibitor, okay? Anything that ends in Bouvier is a polymerase inhibitor. They can be nukes or non-nukes. It's very similar to HIV so far. We have our protease, we have our nukes and our non-nukes, and then anything that ends in Asvir is an NS5A inhibitor, and I remember that one because AS looks like 5A backwards. So not very scientific, but it works. You'll remember these. People say it's the only thing they remember about my talk usually. So <laughs> you've learned something. So, um, but I know a lot of you, you know, also um, use the brand name in practice, and I'll, as I'll point out some of the brand names as I go through this, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip that because there is no one um, correct strategy was the only point I was making. So we combine these just like we do for HIV, okay? if you're new to this, um, and we often will use a nuke in the combination, and the only available nuke is sofosbuvir. So if you know a lot about HIV, I always say sofosbuvir is the tenofovir for hep C, okay? Just same, very similar in kind of potency and uh, high barrier to resistance, it's renally cleared, helps one way to remember it. And then we also use the NS5A and the PI. So when we use a nuke sparing, it's often for the kind of same reasons that we may avoid Tenofovir often it's because of renal insufficiency, but it may be because of drug-drug interactions or other issues as well. So um, we have all these regimens that I already showed you. I'm going to focus in on the last two, the pangenotypic, because some of you are new to this, and there has never been an easier time to treat hep C. All you have to do is just use one of those two regimens. So that's the Mavirat and the Epclusa. Those are the two brand names. So Mavirat is the Phosphorvirvulpatosphere, Epclusa, sorry, Eclusa is the phosphorovolpanosphere, and Mavira is the caprovir-probrantosphere, okay? So you know those two, and I'm going to go through a little more. I'll show you the other two that are recommended for initial treatment, but I think right now those are the main ones. The availability of generics coming up next year might change this a little bit. I guess that um, the phosphorolidiposphere is going generic, which is Harvoni, so that may change, you know, how, may affect how some formularies use, so that one may be a, a good one to know as well. Um, so I have these organized. These are the four possible kind of initial, the four regimens recommended for initial treatment. As I said before, I would focus in on these two pangenotypic ones over here. But I have them organized at the top row are, don't have the nuke. The bottom row has the sofosbuvir. okay? So the bottom row is um, not your preferred for dialysis patients, whereas the top row can be used. However, the bottom row would be preferred for patients who have more severe liver disease because the top row both has 
can't see it because I didn't spell out the names, but both has the Previers, so that's the protease inhibitor classes, and those you cannot use in decompensated liver disease. So Ken just taught you how to recognize decompensated liver disease. So if you see that, you know not to use a hep C protease inhibitor. Don't use anything that ends in Previer. But, you, but these two could potentially be used. So you're not normally going to be treating those patients, but you will be treating some patients with renal disease. So it's important to know that those top ones um, would be preferred. So there were a lot of scenarios um, that used to be hard to treat listed here. I can say now that all of these groups can be treated with very high cure rates. There's really no hard-to-treat group anymore. Everybody should be treated, and you'll have success. Now, that being said, for the new treaters, I guarantee you something in one of your first patients, you'll have a non-success. It's like always happens. <laughs> Don't give up right there. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just like a statistical fluke when that happens. Like your first patient you treat doesn't get cured, and you're like, everything was going right. Why didn't they get cured? But in, in general, if you, if you keep treating people, you will cure uh, way more people than you don't cure, and you'll find it so rewarding to, to cure people. People, you know, it means a lot to people to, to get rid of hepatitis C, not only from a medical level, but an emotional level um, as well. So um, you're going to help me treat this patient. So get ready to vote. Pay attention. So 26-year-old Caucasian woman has genotype 1B, doesn't have cirrhosis, her hep CRNA is 1.2 million. She was tested and diagnosed during her last pregnancy. Um, very low scarring. This was the, a non-invasive test that we didn't really talk much about that's a, um, a send out to, um, but you could do the same thing with FibWarp calculation. You would have gotten, she has very low fibrosis. Uh, she has a seizure disorder on Keppra. So which of the following regimens would not be recommended for her? She has genotype 1B and no cirrhosis. Which one wouldn't you use? <coughs> okay, I think we can. Yeah, I like that one. Spooky. <laughs> okay. So most of you got the correct answer. This is the Fosterville Softville Vox, I'll call it, I'm just going to abbreviate. Softville Vox for eight weeks is um, not an approved regimen. It's when it's used, it's used for 12 weeks. We haven't talked about it yet because it's something we use for retreatment. It's not for initial treatment. So this person's never been treated. So we're going to go with one of these. Um, for people who don't have cirrhosis, and uh, meet certain criteria in the case of this one, eight weeks is appropriate. So for GP, if you don't have cirrhosis, it's always eight weeks. If there's cirrhosis, we extend it to 12 weeks. She didn't have cirrhosis, so she could be done with hep C treatment in two months. Um, the other option would be the Epclusa for 12 weeks. So, good job. So this is sort of my minimum things I need to know pre-treatment. You could argue, if I'm going to use a pan-genotypic regimen, genotype's not so important anymore. And I think as we try to simplify this for you primary care folks, so I love who are doing this now, that may eventually go by the wayside. But I'm just telling you for right now, order it, because insurance is going to ask you for it, and they won't pay for it if you don't order it. So you may as well order it. Um, we usually don't have to do resistance testing. I'll show you a couple exceptions to that. And then we already talked about it's very important to know about cirrhosis, yes or no, because you need to screen those patients for HCC and, and manage their liver disease accordingly as well. So there's all these things. So I am also in an AETC site, and we have this helpline um, in New York that handles PrEP and 
uh, other things and Hep C related questions too. You're welcome to call it, but if you do, like feign a Brooklyn accent, because I, I heard that it's only for New Yorkers. So just say a lot of like, forget about it and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I'm not from Brooklyn. You can see that was a terrible Brooklyn accent. I'm a Midwesterner. So, um, okay, genotype 1B. I'm going to go through a couple of the genotypes very quickly because, to be honest, you can look this stuff up. This is on the guidelines. It's a drop-down menu. You just pull it up. But what I wanted to point out is that you could use any of those. I focus on the two-pan genotypic. It's just less to remember. Eight weeks um, for some of them. If no cirrhosis, if you have cirrhosis, they all get 12 weeks. Okay? Um, so going on with our case, she... Um, She's given cefospir uh, lodiposphere for eight weeks. So true or false, resistance testing should be performed prior to treatment. True or false? <coughs> we would do this if we were starting our first round of HIV treatment, right? We test for resistance. Should we perhaps see? There is a, let me tell you, there is a 10 to 15% rate of mutations associated with resistance to NS5A inhibitors out there. Does that change anyone's answer? Okay, show us the response. Okay, no, it shouldn't have changed your answer. Overwhelmingly false. We don't need to do resistance testing for any of those for genotype 1B. For genotype 1A, um, it's a slightly different story. You, in, with one of the regimens, you will want to check for resistance, but it's not one of those pangenotypic regimens. I don't use it that much anymore. So that was the albasvir gorzeprevir regimen. So, I mean, I think you could, um, I'm guessing you're not going to be prescribing that one a lot. So it's probably not a big deal. But there is this 10 to 15% of um, rate of background NS5A resistance mutations. But fortunately, when, used, when we use combination therapy, they don't seem to affect outcomes. So there's only uh, those couple scenarios where we look for it, so the albasvir gorzeprevir is one of them. It definitely does affect its response rates for genotype 1A. For genotype 1B, it doesn't matter at all. So it's only genotype 1A with that regimen that you need to worry about it. Personally, I think that's like too much for some of you to be having to be worrying about. Just stick with the pan-genotypic regimens and you won't have to worry about it. Um, so that's what it does. So. Um, we at our clinic, and I was so glad to see so many people from different uh, backgrounds or, or um, uh, careers in the room today, we kind of divide and conquer some of the work. Now, it's gotten a lot easier to get prior authorization in New York than it used to. It used to be a real struggle. Now, I hope it's the same in Maine, and you know, if it's not, I hope it will get easier for you as it was. But, so I would kind of do my part by documenting well why I wanted to use a certain regimen. Was it genotype? Was it drug interactions? You know, and put that in the note so that whoever was referring to this as we got, you know, um, our um, dec declined prior authorizations, they would have something to refer to and go back and, and discuss. And then, you know, eventually we could escalate it to a peer-to-peer -peer or something if needed. Because usually if you can justify why you need a particular regimen, you know, they will do the right thing and provide it. But I think without kind of thinking through it and documenting um, it, that's why they help. So this is how we in our clinic divided the, the, the workload in terms of that. And to be honest, the, um, after the initial visit, the nurses carried most of the load of the work for us. It was, uh, and they still do. So the other thing I wanted to say is then after 
I see them and we figure out together what we're going to use. A lot of it is done by our nurses and so we usually have the drug delivered to our clinic because if they leave these expensive medications on the door stoop somewhere in New York, they tend to disappear. Yeah. Not a good idea. And um, then the nurse kind of goes through everything, makes sure they didn't start any new drugs in the interim. Often the uh, antacids are really important because they affect the levels of some of these. And then we book. So I used to do a lot of monitoring, but I think what we're finding is that all this monitoring of labs and stuff probably isn't needed. And there's actually strategies being tested where people are just handed 12 weeks of medication and they're gonna just come back at the end of it and at, at 24 weeks later and see if they're cured. So right now I still do at least a week four set of labs. And there's certain scenarios where you need to monitor more closely, and that includes people who have Hep B. It could potentially reactivate. So there's certain scenarios where, you know, absence of monitoring would not be good. But in general, most people don't need a lot of monitoring. These drugs are very safe. So this is the algorithm of how I approach patients in general. I start with that genotype, and it tells me, you know, what what potential regimens could be used. In this case, if you kind of just go across. We don't need to do resistance testing because it's 1B. All four regimens could be used. She's HIV negative. She didn't have cirrhosis, so she could use some of the eight-week regimens. Her creatinine's normal, so didn't have to worry about not using cefosivir. Um, she had some drug interactions because she was on a PPI, um, and that tell you there how to handle those. And then I think about, is there some specific things I need to do in terms of follow-up? So her, she had a history of intravenous drug use pretty recently, and so for her, I would no, definitely rescreen after she was successfully treated, make sure she doesn't get reinfected, and also just ensure she has adequate support services like harm reduction. Um, okay, any questions on that case? Not, I'll go on to case two. So good job helping me manage that. Oh, go ahead. I have one quick question. So, um, for No. So I'm going to get to that with this case. So great setup for me. We'll talk about Hep B, how to handle Hep B uh, test results. So this is a 45-year-old African-American man who has genotype 2 and cirrhosis. Okay. So we have to remember to check if he's compensated or decompensated. His Hep C RNA is 221,000. He'd never been treated. It was made based on his fiber scan or transient elastography. He had didn't have any decompensation events. He had endoscopy. There were no varices. He had a sonogram, which didn't diagnose his cirrhosis, but showed he had no liver cancer. And in terms of his other medical history, as you pointed out, he has, in addition to the uh, end-stage renal disease, he's surface antigen positive, core antibody positive, surface antibody negative, okay? So we'll go through the, the people who aren't. So this is someone you want to worry about Hep B a little bit because he is surface antigen positive, and he doesn't have HIV, so he's not on tenofovir or anything like that. Okay, so what can we use for people who have genotype 2? The two pan genotypic regimens. So just remember these, eight weeks if they're not cirrhotic for GP, 12 weeks if they're cirrhotic for soft vowel, it's 12 weeks either way. So he has um, end-stage renal disease on dialysis. Which one? Oh, wait, maybe that's my next question. No, it's not, so I'll just ask. Which one can I use? GP, good. Okay, so we want to avoid soft because of that. Okay, so prior to treatment, you recommend which of which following additional evaluation: a Hep B genotype, a Hep C resistance test, an MRI to evaluate for HCC, 
or transplant center referral. Try to look tricky here. Okay. Law and order. That's the best. People are tiring. <laughs> Who knows the theme song? Oh, Law and Order, Law and Order. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, so um, kind of an equal distribution. I know a lot of people voted, but what I was getting at was actually transplant center referral, not because of his liver disease. So I kind of, I know I talked about Hep B, might have fooled a few of you. It's because of his kidney disease. And if he wants a kidney transplant, you can get it much quicker if you have active hep C because they could use a hep C positive organ, then you can get it if you don't have hep C. So if you know he has no interest in a kidney transplant, then you know that wouldn't have been the right answer. But if, if there's even a slight possibility that he would want a kidney transplant, he should do that first, okay? It's like not intuitive, <laughs> but it's the truth. So don't, you know, it, it affects wait time in my area from like four years to like less than a year. It's really dramatic. So it makes a big difference if, you, if they want a kidney transplant. Now, would he have qualified for a kidney tramp with his transplant with cirrhosis and all of that? I don't know, but I don't want to make that call. I'm not really qualified. So, um, okay, so he's not interested in kidney transplant. Now, which regimen are you going to use? Um, in the sake of time, again, I think we'll skip this one because we, talk, we ruled that one out. He's cirrhotic. It needs to be the 12-week one. I'm not going to make you vote on that. Okay, so here's the data. Very high cure rates when using GP for uh, patients with renal disease. Albusvir versus Depravir is similar. It works really well. Um, you have those two options. Guidelines tell you more about it. There's a whole section on kidney disease if you need help with that. Um, so now he's on treatment, and you know it was going well, but four weeks into it, he comes in, he's got some malaise, and his exam's unchanged, but you get his labs, and you see his liver enzymes are quite high, and his bilirubin has also risen. So Ken, pay attention here, you're gonna weigh in. <laughs> so that CRNA is not detected. Four weeks into labs, his liver enzymes rise. This is our <coughs> genotype two surface antigen positive patient. So what do you do next? Do you immediately discontinue his hep C treatment and admit him to the hospital? Do you discontinue hep C treatment and order labs? Do you continue hep C treatment and order labs? What do you wanna do? Then we'll have Ken tell us what he's doing. He would go. Okay, let's see what people would do. So most would continue in order labs. Do you agree with that? I do. Yeah, I think I do too. So that was what was done, and then it did. We did find out he had happy reactivation, um, and. Um, but I think some other possibilities could be hepatic decompensation. You know, he got a hep C protease inhibitor, but he was pretty compensated for the beginning, so that's not likely to happen. Another viral infection would be something else to think about, drug you know, the hep A outbreak going on, drug-induced liver injury. There's a few possibilities, but, um, in this, you know, don't forget hep B reactivation. And the reason I say don't forget it was because in these, when this sort of warning about <coughs> hep B reactivation during DA treatment came about, People weren't really thinking that might happen. And so there were some cases where patients came in very sick. Some were needed liver transplants, some were 
you know, died. And I think Hep B wasn't on the top of their list of what was going on, so it kind of took a little while to make some of the diagnosis, and treatment was probably delayed longer than it needed to be. So if a person's surface antigen positive, you should have this um, in your mind that they could, when you get rid of the Hep C, something happens in the liver, whether it's the local you know, immune reaction going on or something else in the liver that can allow Hep B then to rear its ugly head. But who's most at risk of that? It's the surface antigen positive people, to your question. If someone's <laughs> only core antibody positive, their chance of reactivating is very low. So if they're core antibody positive, surface antibody positive, I do not check a Hep B DNA prior to treatment. If they're isolated core antibody positive, where their surface antibody is negative, I probably would in that case. Most of those will be negative. Um, if they're surface antigen positive, you absolutely need to check a DNA and decide if they need treatment. Okay, and so then, who do you monitor? Well, you monitor the surface antigen positive people with DNAs during treatment. If they're just core antibody positive, those are the people I would only check if they came in kind of like that guy. If they came in and didn't feel well, or if their liver enzymes were rising, that's when you monitor. Um, for the DNA and see if it could be happy. So, any questions on that? That's in the guidelines, so there's a whole section on that in the monitoring section if you need to review it. Okay, so quickly, and then we'll, I think, take our break. Um, this is the algorithm I used for this patient. So he was genotype 2, didn't need resistance testing because we're going to use a pangenotypic regimen and you don't uh, test with, for resistance with those two. Um, he's HIV negative, um, he's cirrhotic, um, and so we can't do any eight-week regimens. He is compensated, so it's okay to use PIs, and it's okay for us to treat him. His creatinine clearance is less than 30, uh, so no fosfavir. Again, he was on a PPI because it isn't everyone, um, so you have to look into those interactions. And then cirrhotics um, need monitoring after treatment, right, for their liver disease and for HCC, and then his hep B surface antigen also needed monitoring. So that was just the other little point to think about with that patient. Okay, so I had a co, I'm gonna, you're covering the co-infection case, so well, yeah, so we'll hold off on this one, but, um, so we'll take our break. Great.